Welcome to Chronicles, a podcast about real people with real stories having real conversations on health. My name is Michaela Newman, a American Canadian transplant living out coronavirus in Geneva, Switzerland, where I've lived for the last seven years, continuing to advocate, binge whatever's left on Netflix, and think about the important directions of our lives in the context of everything we're experiencing today. Hi, uh, my name is Grace Katera. I am Rwandan, and I live in Kigali, Rwanda. And I'm, you know, trying to explore the new normal, as everyone is putting it, um, while also binging um, dark on Netflix and asking myself existential questions about why we are live right now. Hi guys, my name is Job Wako. I am an industrial engineer living with a kidney transplant here in Nairobi, Kenya. And like my friends have said, in these times of COVID, it's been really unsure. And now we're just trying to figure out the new normal. I think the, the biggest issue for me living with a transplant, of course, is I'm immunocompromised and the way it's looking uh, today, the seventh, the sixth of July, our president just opened up the look. We don't have a lockdown anymore, so I'm wondering if we all have to get COVID, what that looks like, you know. And it's a bit worrying, but I think overall, I'm happy that we are here. We made it this far, and I believe that we'll we'll make it. You know, I'm, I believe that we'll be able to ride the COVID wave and make it through 2020 but 2020 has been a year so far but i'm glad we're here guys i'm glad that we're back recording and i'm i hope we'll be able to you know entertain people through these COVID times a lot to already unpack even in what you guys have introduced so thank you so much for that i think to our listeners um there hasn't been a new episode in a little while and i think like for many different people all over the world there was a bit of a a pause um, when the world shut down and as we confronted how interconnected we are and what that can mean at a global scale uh, when there's a pandemic. So one of the things that we've discussed is how we can resume conversations. You'll notice that not all five of us are on today's call, so Maya and Chantal cannot join today, but what we want to do is host regular conversations with whomever of us can join because what coronavirus and I think a number of other movements like the Black Lives Matter movement that's taking place now at a global scale are showing us is that hard conversations need to be had now more than ever. And perhaps this new normal is actually just the unveiling of a lot of things that have been going on for a while that we finally need to confront. And I think the conversations we're having are in whatever small role, you know, they, they play a part in that global discourse. So maybe to kick off, actually, it'd be great to hear from each of you about your own experience of the last three months. You, you've mentioned it briefly, but um, how has it, how has COVID-19 and anything going on at a societal level in your countries impacted how you're feeling and how you're, you're working on your own health advocacy and as global advocates? Thank you for the question. I 
I think I've given a bit of uh, background uh, about how I was doing, but I think I think the sentiment was a bit nas- national because if you went online, um, you'd see people panic buying. You'd see a lot of rumors about what COVID meant, what um, what who it affected and who it didn't. I think the month of April, which is also unfortunately my month, my birthday month. Um, was riddled with a lot of uncertainty and sadness and anxiety and fear. And it was also, unfortunately, the month that Rwandans commemorate the genocide against the Tutsi. So all of these things happening together definitely triggered a lot of uh, mental flashbacks for survivors and uh, PTSD for people with PTSD. Um, And so it wasn't really... A good period, uh, speaking uh, for in Randa's context. But um, I've been trying to look at the silver lining, which is that um, our government definitely showed up and showed out. <laughs> they they took control of everything. They took care of people. They gave them food. Um, for a low income country, I'm really proud of us and how much how much team spirit that was um, there still is because I think the majority of Rwandans are wearing face masks without um, protest. <laughs> so I'm 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 a bit thankful, but I'm also very aware of what that what it the 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 rabbit, the economic rabbit and you know mental health uh, situation that we're living with right now. Well, I. I... I relate so much to to you, Grace. And as you said, when COVID that first came to Africa, I think Rwanda and Kenya, we, we reported our first case within a week of each other or so. And I remember the, the panic buying and just the panic, like everyone wondering what's going to happen. I think it was crazy. I, I remember even we were in, I believe in Sharjah together, and it, it was already blowing up. It was already like super yeah. huge in China, and we we would look and wonder like, oh my God, is this gonna come to the whole world? And of course, everyone was hoping that it wouldn't come to that country. But the beginning, as our first case was, I believe mid March, and that's for for Nairobi, Kenya, and our patient zero was. Kenyan from the States to flew in. I wasn't in Nairobi when it flew in, like when the, the patient flew in or coronavirus was first reported here. But I do remember sitting with some of my close friends and colleagues because we, we had been working on an advocacy agenda for people living with NCDs and trying to disseminate in, in rural areas in Kenya. And we just were so worried because our health systems are already stressed, you know, and that's something that anyone with an NCD will tell you, including, you know, including mental health, because mental health is an NCD. And we, we were now wondering with something like COVID, COVID would further stress our health systems that are already, that are already fragile. And there's already so many people living with NCDs who don't have access to good health care. So now we can imagine with something like COVID, it would just make that more uh, more evident. It would just expose how our health systems don't 
adequately cater to all of us as people living with NCDs. But I come back to Nairobi and literally my parents are like, don't leave the house. No one's leaving the house. We panic bought, of course, and stocked up on grains and just really a kind of apocalyptic kind of view of what's happening. We thought the world was coming to an end. Everything's going to break down. Our systems will work. We wouldn't be driving anywhere and so forth. The first month, and that's like end of March, beginning of April, we just sat in the house and literally hardly moved anywhere, ate the food we had bought and watched TV, radio, internet, everything, all the news that was coming to us. And it was so negative. Okay, so in, I have an issue about the news. I think they have to report objectively, but then I think also there's a part where the news kind of exaggerates and kind of really makes the, the news uh, like a headliner, like they'll add a little twist to it to make it just sound even more devastating than it really is. And so that month, I remember just thinking COVID is probably going to lead us to, you know, butter trade. And I just thought the worst. I'm terrified about getting it. I think if you're healthy, like, you just have to, like, try and take care of your health the most. And it's, it's anyone's guess. Some people are asymptomatic, Grace. And you might be mm-hmm. one of them. You might not show any oh, symptoms. Oh, but no. you might have mild symptoms. <laughs> I, have, I have respiratory issues, man. I don't think I'd be asymptomatic. But I, I remember I remember writing to you um, in April. I'm like, do you think we got it off the plane? <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. I do. So you guys have shared a lot in the last few minutes. I tried to take some notes because it was hard to necessarily follow one thread and, and go into more detail because we covered so many things just now. Um, but... <laughs> I, I would say that one thing that came across from both of you, and I think it's important as advocates, but also in a number of other fields, is the uh, personal responsibility first. So I think in, in the work that we do, um, it is because of our lived experiences that we are motivated to play a role in seeing you know, societal, um, political, global shifts towards Mm -hmm. better healthcare, but I think before we can do that, and maybe that's a great explanation for our brief respite over the last few months, is is before we can do that, we must take care of ourselves. So Grace, I think that came through very well in what you said, and coronavirus is one of a a few things that hit all at once um, Mm -hmm. in in a month marked with personal and historical significance for you, and and so you, you chose to take care of yourself, and... Um, Job, I think that you also built on that to consider your own circumstances being immunodeficient and also kind of on a community level um, looking at what needs to be done um, and how you can support those that you know locally who are going through similar circumstances. So that that degree of prioritization is quite a, it's a difficult task when it feels that the stakes are so high, you know? Yeah. I, I, it definitely is. And I think I would not blame anyone if they decide to take care of themselves, those in this situation. But it's always so, it's so moving to see people stand up and take care of others. People think about, like, food. They think about 
okay, so like for example, job, he's like, okay, so while I may, you know, know where my next, you know, um, support is going to come from, I've forgotten what it's called, job, I'm sorry. Um, but what about others? Are they going to be able to receive medication? Are they going to, how am I going to do this in this context? And for you, Michaela, I remember you were extra, you know, like, uh, how are you doing? What's happening in your t- life? Like, and the thing is, I, 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 I'm, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, you were living alone. So I think it would have been much easier for you to, you know, shut everyone out and not check in on them. But it was so inspiring to see you check in, to see you, you know, um, you know, just yeah. live your life bravely because just, just showing that you're, you know, doing yoga or showing that you woke up and you got dressed is enough to have someone else say, okay, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this because all my friends are doing this and, you know, it's, it's, it's going to keep me afloat. This is what I'm going to tether on and, you know, uh, stay, stay uh, connected. Mm. Well, thank you. Yeah, I think for me, my, my challenge at first was just, um, you know, a lot of people here in Geneva who live internationally were faced with a decision of whether or not to go home right away before the borders closed to, to stay out their confinement with their families. And mm-hmm. my, my father is HIV positive and, my, and he lives with my 81-year-old, well, 82 this month actually, um, grandmother. There's a lot of emphasis right now on personal responsibility to ourselves and to others to keep ourselves mm-hmm. safe. And I think that that was a decision that I had to take um, very early on. I'm very lucky because I'm happy in my home. I'm kind of a homebody. So at first, I was like, I've always wanted to work from home. This is the dream. Um, <laughs> and, and I will say the fatigue started to hit mostly in month three. Like we're looking, we're almost into four full months at home. And mm-hmm. I think somewhere in the last oh. month, I thought, whoa. Now, luckily, I see people. It's not like I've been estranged completely. This is where I did start to think, how much longer will I be blocked from my family? I think that that, I, I wonder how other people living really at a distance from their loved ones are feeling at this time because it's that sense of, will I be able to see them before the end of 2020? It's that um, degree of uncertainty. And I think that that is one of the biggest impacts of coronavirus is we are, I think on a global scale, a society who plans ahead um, one way or another, and we could not predict the impact of COVID-19, and it throws True. all of our work into the air, and and I think that that creates, um, joke to a point you mentioned at length, it, it creates a, a new pressure on mental health, like how do we take care of ourselves when we can't even anticipate an end to this, and when suddenly maybe in our communities there's more unemployment where the health risks are higher because of um, fragile health systems where beds are occupied because of COVID and no longer are available for those who have accidents or face other chronic conditions. This uncertainty has certainly started to to take a toll on my own well-being, but it's been more of a time to reflect. Stretching the personal responsibility framework to what that means as a global citizen and as a global advocate, and we're all kind of in that space. And I actually realized I, I might have a couple of questions for you guys because 
Actually, yeah, I have two main sets of questions I'd love to ask. The first is, you know, from Rwanda and Kenya, I'm wondering what your response would be to the global narrative on coronavirus. A lot of the news coverage has seemed to focus very, very much on the U.S., the European Union, and China, linked a lot to all of this digital contact tracing and all of this. And you sometimes hear other countries mentioned when their rates, like their number of cases increase, like India, Brazil. But I, I feel like the global news coverage has not presented uh, a robust picture of COVID-19 globally. I don't know from your own countries if you share that opinion. So yes, we have not provided a, a, a very a balanced um, coverage. They've not presented balanced coverage of uh, coronavirus cases worldwide. And, but for me, that's a good thing because it's definitely better than the, the doomsday reporting that had started at the beginning of the, mm. of the, year, of the, of the pandemic. Because mm-hmm. they were saying, Africans are going to die out, man. It's like they were, they were gleeful about it. And then when it wasn't uh, affecting us as strongly as it, uh, they had predicted, then they started asking questions like, um, are Africans uh, immune? Uh, why is it not coming? And then they switched it to when it comes, it's gonna devastate them. So I'm I'm just thankful that um, they're not rumormongering mm. for the time being. Yeah, I, I kind of can relate with Grace, and yeah, at first I think Africa is is the last wave, or is predicted to be the last wave of Corona, and when. Like Asia, Europe, even the Americas were peaking. We weren't really peaking yet because, as I said, our first cases here in South Africa were in March. Mm-hmm. And for Kenya, at least, it's now is when we're, tra- we're starting to see some like the, the rising in numbers. And we've just opened up the country, so we've removed lockdown and stuff. So I think part of it is because the coronavirus cases haven't been as high yet. It's anyone's guess how high they'll get here in Africa. But I know South Africa, when it was peaking, was in the news for a bit. Anyway, here in Kenya, we, we had news of South Africa, a bit of Ghana and Nigeria. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there are also some, yeah, there's some countries in, in Africa that are, are a bit more, I guess, international media follows more than others, which is unfortunate. I wish there would be a kind of more of an overview of just how Africa is doing. Our solutions will be very different. And that's that's how I feel, just looking at how things are going. Mm-hmm. Because the things that are working here in Africa are a bit different. I, I know there's a case of a slum area here in Nairobi that hasn't really reported a case of COVID. And everyone's wondering how come, because a lot of the slum areas, you know, according to the experts, were slum areas would just, it would spread like wildfire because it's not running water very close, you know, their houses are very close. So for the slum, for that slum not to have reported a case of COVID and other places in Nairobi or in, even in Kenya are reporting, it's it's showing hope. It's showing that a lot of the thoughts that the experts had might not necessarily be right. And there might be some learning, some lessons in it. 
you know, it might not be necessarily running water in separation. There might be other ways to prevent COVID from spreading. And that's something I'm hoping to see as the situation develops. You know, and another question that I, I wanted to ask you guys was more around the global narrative for, or, or like around health systems. So, for instance, I feel that that there's been a lot of reactive dialogue about health systems, but that often gets intermingled with political agenda of certain, like a geopolitical agenda. And and I'm wondering, you know, as as we look at the the kind of news narrative for COVID nineteen, to what degree do you feel that it accurately calls attention to the 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 fact that many countries, even in the wealthiest areas, did not have a sufficient enough health system to respond to this pandemic, and that you know where we really went wrong was was in not investing in health systems beforehand. Now we're talking about, oh, what can we do to recover? But as we look at the, at the, the next steps, how important is that, that discussion and really investing in robust health systems so that if something unexpected occurs, we have the, the resources and the resiliency to respond uh, and put fewer lives at risk? Because that certainly was not the case in some countries this time. Oh, absolutely. Um, I agree with you, Michaela. I think the world in general is unprepared for how bad this was going to get. I think there was general... We Our health systems definitely were exposed. And this is speaking on like a global level, not even like pinpointing one particular government. I think globally, okay. we, are very, we were not preemptive at all. Um, I know it's been heavily politicized, and I think that there's a bit of a power struggle. Um, but I think for me, looking to the future, I would really like um, people to remember uh, vulnerable groups when it comes to like preparation, because I, I think maybe as the facts show, uh, communities of color across the world are suffering uh, unfairly, and I think I think that's something that needs to be addressed. But I I. Again, there's a part of me that has gone a bit cynic that says we need to take care of ourselves because people won't take care of us. But another one is just hoping against hope that there's going to be systems in place that um, make sure that this this never happens again. And I'll, I'll take over from that. I think I agree with what Grace said and you, Michaela. But my, my sister is a human activist, right? And she keeps on telling me that Everything is politics. Even the the food you eat is politics. Everything in a country is all about politics. I like the fact that health is being politicized, if that's a word, because if you take politics, yeah, it'll take politics to actually change the healthcare systems. Now, I do not think that healthcare, like the way they're politicizing healthcare. For the negative, like an example that sticks out for me is when Trump was saying that he can't, he, he doesn't want the numbers to go up, so don't test as much. There was like a statement he had made about that somehow, and that's the negative side of politicizing healthcare, you know, because you do need to test to find out how many people have COVID so you can react to it. But 
I feel that if you politicize healthcare the right way, then you will get the change that we're pushing for. Because as a health advocate, we're pushing for, for policy level change at all levels, you know, so that the they, they can the government can deal better with healthcare issues or the problems that we're facing as healthcare advocates or the ones we're pushing for, right? But we would only have change if we can have politics, the right politics affect healthcare. I do I do believe that it'll take politicians with the right information to make change to healthcare systems. And it, it brings me back to the UHC movement, you know, where we've been pushing for healthcare for everyone, especially the people in marginalized areas who see the fragility of healthcare systems, right? And so if we're able to get to them or push the UHC agenda back and say, this is a problem that people are faced, you know, and it's now that more people are seeing the, the fragility of healthcare systems. But before, these are these are things we'd see all the time. Even when I was going through my transplant, they saw how healthcare systems lack in certain areas and how expensive they are and how inaccessible they are. They're like, all these issues have always been there. It's just that now more of the public is getting to see them because they're seeing that the people they love are dying and mm. because of COVID, mm. you know. I think that's a great point. And I think the example that you raised earlier about, you know, looking at the organ transplants and seeing that a percentage of them show traces, you know, the blood shows traces of COVID, it, it shows just how fragile health systems are and the kind of domino effect when it comes to infectious diseases. I think that what we've seen is just how important health is for a wealthy, thriving country. And when suddenly everyone is exposed to some kind of risk, it highlights how important investment in health systems is and, and really, really looking at health preparedness. Um, but to also to Grace's point, like that that means health preparedness and health for all. You know, it goes back to kind of this notion of universal health coverage and, and basic access for everybody. And, and certainly COVID-19 has shown us dramatically how certain populations are exposed to much greater risk um, that has always been there to your point. So I'm, I'm curious to see kind of where our responsibility lies as global you know, NCD advocates and mental health advocates in calling attention to these, to these gaps well beyond the, the discourse on COVID-19, but in our everyday lives. You know, I, I think that, that, that raises maybe the, the last question for me, and of course, if you guys want to flag anything, but the last question for me for today's call would be, would be around that um, responsibility as, as global health advocates, um, acknowledging more than ever how in interconnected our own lives and our own health systems are to um, community health, to our own health, to global health, uh, but, but also very much uh, putting a spotlight on certain um, disparities, certain uh, divides, uh, uh, particularly around or, or along the lines of, of race, class, ethnicity, uh, gender, um, and even age we've seen. I'm wondering how you each have been thinking about that. I, I Just to share a little bit, of course, um, from my side, 
while I did march here in uh, Geneva, there were 10,000 of us who marched a few weeks ago for Black Lives Matter, uh, not all with masks, which was interesting, and, and it has been interesting to see where there's been an increase in um, COVID cases in the U.S. where there were a lot of marches. Um, but I, I felt that it displayed this new remarkable demand of particularly young people to say we are willing to expose ourselves to assert ourselves as big community and say what's happening is not okay. But it, it also raises questions for me as, as an advocate here in Geneva working on health. Um, I read and shared with you guys an incredible article and I just wanted to name it here. Um, in the BMJ by Nisreen Alwan saying let's equalize our anti-racist language and she talks about how we should challenge our use of the words like inclusive, diversity, and tolerance because they do imply a, a sense of othering and I, I, I'm kind of, I'm not sure it's a coherent thing that I'm saying right now but I'm trying to piece together through my own experience of COVID-19 in parallel to the civil unrest and the civil lack of rights that so many people face that has impacted their health, their careers, their lives of this injustice. And I believe it does have a place in our conversations and how we behave as, and in our responsibility as advocates. Um, but I'm still figuring out my own personal responsibility when it's my position to speak to this or to integrate it into a certain advocacy message or campaign. That's kind of a very lengthy question to end with, but that's <laughs> what's on my mind. <laughs> I'll say in regards to your question on, on just the movements that have been going on in the world, you know, I had done some leadership, like I had read about leadership in global health. And this, I'm going to try and tie it in with, with the movements on race. And it was saying that women comprise about, comprise, sorry, women comprise 70% of the health and social care workers globally and about 90% of nurses. Mm -hmm. But they're only in 25% of leadership roles. And this is in global health. This is, global health to me, I see it as like a, a lot of doctors and nurses and social workers all very educated people, smart people, as in they're the smartest people who take care of us, you know. And there is so much inequality in just global health. So in the world where a lot of the money is in the West and it's a leadership issue, if you don't have a diverse leadership, you will not have change. So if your leadership is one particular race and the people are following or people under them are another particular race, you'll never really get equality because the leadership will favor or usually if they aren't, if they aren't, woke, if I can say, I don't know a better word to say, but if they aren't in the point where they see equality and see everyone as equal, then they're going to lead in such a way. And so for me, I would say it's a leadership thing, it's a leadership issue, the most powerful nations have a particular race and they're the ones who control most of the money. So in that sense, it's it's a bit difficult to see change if everyone beneath, like the youth, I, I believe the change will be the youth because we're the ones who will eventually get to these leadership positions and create change. But 
until then, change will be slow, in my opinion. And in that slowness, it takes a lot of time. It's like bureaucratic. It's If I say in 100 years, you guys will see equality. So people will be like, yeah, this change is happening, but it's happening so slow that we might never see it. It might not be my generation. It might be the next generation. You see, so it's about persistence. And I'm happy that young people, you said most of them were young people, which is amazing. So I can't wait to see us in leadership, you know, in big positions that can actually affect change. And that's when I think we'll really see like, meaningful change. We'll see change that really impact millions and billions in the world. When Burundi died, the former president of Burundi, there was a part of me that I very much stifled that was, and this is a horrible uh, thing to say. Um, I, I'm very aware of that. But there was a part of me that was glad because it marked an end of, um, of a horrible time for ethnic groups within Burundi because he pitted one ethnic group uh, against the other. Um, he rid uh, one ethnic group of rights and you know made them refugees. We currently have over 10,000 counting uh, refugees in, in, in Rwanda. And that's not something that should happen, right? Um, the borders are closed with Rwanda. The, you know, they they expelled foreign presence, and who knows what's happening to Burundians? Because you know, we kept hearing these reports of major um, public officials dying mysteriously, have being involved in car bombs and stuff like that. So, um, I was thinking that. I stifled it because, you know, it's never good to celebrate anyone's death. Um, but uh, but for me, it personally signified a beginning of a window of change. You know, when we learn in history about the winds of change that led to countries acquiring independence in the 1960s, um, we, we don't hear very much about the freedom fighters that led us there. But to me, the, the current political climate, the current unrelenting daily showing up of black people and their allies on the street, being tear gassed, being hit with batons, being um, hurt, being, you know, potentially exposing themselves to the virus. I think for me, that is like, it's modern day winds of change. It's modern day re- revolutions. It's beginning to, to, to smell like change. Uh, and that's uh, on a global level because things have happened that I never thought in my lifetime I'd ever see. Um, but that's, uh, again, that's not to say like job that, you know, um, we stop here. Um, I think this is just the beginning. It's a spark, but we must sustain that spark. And speaking as an as an advocate uh, myself, I think there has to be 
are moving out of comfort zones. I think it's not enough that we retweet these things, that we post them on our Instagram, that we go ahead and you know, read, up, read books about it. I think it's. I think there must be concentrated movement for those who can't go out because they will be exposed to the virus mm-hmm. and put and lose their lives or something worse. Um, I think there must be, you know, financial support. There must be uh, protection of uh, identities. There must be close-knit communication. There must be signing petitions. There must be, you know, rallying around people. And, you know, I, I, but it, it, it's it making me so hopeful. It's filling me with so much joy to see, for example, okay, here's a, a clear thing that I never thought would ever happen in my lifetime. The the NFL contemplating changing the Washington Redskins or NFL, mm-hmm. I don't know who is contemplating, but the Redskins um, name. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's a slur to say, but um, that was something I never thought I'd see. Mm-hmm. I never thought I'd see, you know, um, apologies from major corporations. I never thought I'd see people stepping down. I never thought I'd see people giving a dress the kind of oppression that black women in particular go through in organizations of mm. power where they're gaslit and, you know, forced to resign because, you know, companies can't handle them, things like that. I never thought I'd see that, but it's happening. And so I guess what's, what's, what we need now is just sustained activity and, and it, it's on an individual basis. Wow, that is... Uh... A very clear agenda, I think, for for what we can each be doing. Not not only as health advocates, but I think as you know, participants, young participants in the maybe reimagining of the future that we want. Um, you know, one thing that's bared heavily on my mind, and I think I shared this with you guys too, is something that the Lancet recently published around a. A generation C, generation coronavirus, that the young people today, you know, they are growing up on the backs of 9-11, 2008 financial crisis, uh, 2015-16 migration crisis, um, now COVID, um, you know, graduating into a, a, a world that is somewhat shut down um, into a huge political game and into um, the nakedness of of racism and fear and hatred and class war and so many things. You know, a climate, which we, we've not talked about before at length, but, you know, with an environment that's um, going to probably show us more uncertainty and crisis in the future to come. And yet there is an amazing amount of strength and individual willpower that young people are showing. Um, and, and, and Joe, to your point, my goodness, I can't wait until we see young people at the helm of, of this work with, with, with fewer and fewer and fewer obstacles. And, um, you know, I think that that's the only thing I'm, I'm clearer and clearer on is how I can every day in, in some way be cognizant of, of, my own privilege and and how to remove as many obstacles as possible um, for young people and for my fellow advocates to 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 make the tremendous difference that that they're already making. 
Um, but I don't know, any last words? I'm, I'm incredibly moved by both of your responses to my very rambling <laughs> final point. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a question for you. As we end, I think that's my, my final, I guess, thought of parting short. Parting short. Okay. What to you would be the most important win for us as youth in regards to making an impact? Because when you refer to the article from the BMJ and talking about inclusion, which kind of refers or kind of creates an other, mm -hmm. a lot of youth-centered spaces create others. Like I feel like when we create a youth-centered space mm -hmm. to encourage the youth, the youth are part of our society, right? So why do we have to create youth spaces? I think we should just kind of integrate the youth in the normal spaces that everyone else is in so that you can relate with other people, you know? But what to you would be an important win for youth, like for young people, either in global health or in just relation to everything, you know, the racial tension and everything that's going on in the world today? Well, that's a big question, but I, I think you also, you answered it in, in some way, you know? It, the, the best thing that, or, or no, I don't know the best, but my immediate response to that is that to reduce the othering, to reduce the tokenism, the tolerance, the talk of diversity in the workplace, we need to change our hiring practices, our education, and, and learn, you know, reduce obstacles to education and learning uh, so that more young people can be integrated, hired, and promoted from within. I think that what we see a lot of, and, and frankly, I'm fed up, and I think anyone who knows me knows that, I am fed up of, I think another uh, word that I would add to that is empowerment. Youth have power. This is not in question. Young people have a lot of power. What, what others need to do is remove as many obstacles as possible because that is where the kind of the flame stop short or where where the potential is not fully unlocked. What I would love to see is not a separate youth summit on certain subjects or um, you know a, a UN youth envoy who gets to do essay competitions in this case where they can say look we're so inclusive and we're allowing young people to meaningfully contribute to the new normal after COVID by providing free intellectual input into a UN process for which they may never be able to 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 operate from within. Like, I, I think that, yeah. um, you know, to really see a difference, we need to see young people in these systems, not as the intern unpaid, not as the junior professional who will never um, be promoted because the... The benefits are too good for people in their 50s and 60s whose kids' education is being paid for and who are living on a tax-free salary. I think there should be like a term, uh, so many years that you can serve in the UN before you have to move on. Um, and, and I think that we need to look at real co-governance models for the future that, that seize the power that youth already have, that look at reimagining the future based on the transformation that young people are living most acutely 
while of course still leaning on the wisdom of people with generations of, of, of knowledge and experience and exposure. Um, but, but that, to your point, there, there is no othering. And, and, you know, of course, I'd love to see as we flatten the curve that we also flatten the, the power and the hierarchies that we've built around, you know, maintaining, um, you know, a certain status quo that serves a certain demographic. I, you know, I, I think that we really, really need to confront um, the, the way that we've built societies, um, international agencies, uh, a number of things, because a lot of these came about after World War II, United Nations and a number of institutions, as a response to bring people together for international collaboration, etc. But I think these models are changing. It doesn't mean that we do away with them. But as we reach like the 75th anniversary of the UN, I don't think it's about having a youth panel at the UN General Assembly in September. I think it's about um, completely overhauling the, the staff and, um, and providing, to, to, to Grace's point, new funding to uplift young people, people of color, people from... Uh, countries that we do not hear from nearly enough on the global stage, and to create new mechanisms for these for these um, initiatives to be deployed for for greater scale. Uh, I don't really know if that's a that's those are my immediate thoughts, but I couldn't tell you exactly what the path is to get there. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's uh, it's all about changing the system, right? The system that already exists is there, so we as youth need to be disruptive enough to change the system and make it into something that we envision it. Like we are the future right now, you know, we are the ones who can create change. So I don't believe in creating our own spaces. I think we should just create spaces that are already there, like, you know, change it to where it's, to what we envision, if that makes sense. It does, and I agree with you. I think we should stop hyphenating our identities. We're not youth advocates, we are advocates. We are not youth activists, we are activists. Mm-hmm. We're yeah. not just youth this. We are fully functioning members of society who pay tax, who should see where our tax goes, who should enjoy the benefits of a fully functional system, but we don't. So I'm definitely with you guys. I'm I'm here for a complete overhaul of how things are done, um, and I'm so excited to see uh, the next generation and you know um, all the work that we are, all the work that we're putting in place. I, I I want to see it come to fruition. That's a perfect yeah. way to end. Perfect. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well said. Well, thank you, fellow advocates, and. Um, I appreciate the the conversation so much and and looking forward to chatting again very soon. Absolutely. Take care. Bye. 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 Thanks so much for listening in to this most recent episode of Chronicles. We know it's been a little while since our last episode. However, we already have another episode recorded and ready to share with you soon. So keep an eye out for us on Twitter at ChroniclesPodCST or email us at ChroniclesHealthPodcast at gmail.com. 
You can also find all our episodes on chronicles.podient.co. That's chronicles.podient.co online. Thanks so much and looking forward to speaking with you soon.